Thank you for listening to this message from Rooted and Resolved. Take your Bibles with me if you would this morning and turn to the book of Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4 is where we'll be today and start a new sermon series today. Sermon series today is entitled, Why Church? Why church? Why do you come here? Why do I stand and speak and you come and listen? What's the whole point of what we're doing? Why, I mean, why even come to church? I mean, church, let's just face it. Isn't church kind of outdated? I mean, think about it. You, 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 what do you need church for? It's nothing but full of hypocrites. I mean, it's nothing but sinners and hypocrites in the church. I mean, it's easy to get aggravated with it. You look on TV, there's sex scandals, there's people stealing money. Why even come to church? They fight within the denomination. The church can't even get its act together. So why should anybody come to church? If you just look at church, and you have this idea that it's TV evangelists and it's their uh, shameless plugs for money and, and messages. If that's what it is, why, why do it? Besides, David, let's just face it. Church is nothing more than just a way for the government to control its people. I mean, that's how it got started, right, David? I mean, didn't people just start that so that there would be this, these laws and these, this moral code, and it works out real well. See, I'm here. I'm in it for the money. That's all I'm in it for. That's why I'm here, right? I'm just here for the money, and let me tell you, it's a lot. And I'm here for the money, and, uh, and I just you come, and I tell you things that make you feel better about your life and about your impending death, and you leave here feeling like better people, and... That's what we do. It's all just this construct of the government. So why do it? Why would we do that? And David, if you expect me to be committed to church, I mean, I might come, but if you expect me to be committed and like actually join the church or get involved with the church, no, no way, David. You, you've lost, see, David, we don't live in a culture like that anymore. We're not committed to anything, David. We, we have this fear of commitment as a culture. We don't get married because we don't want to commit. We, we, we don't stay at the same job for 40 years. Nobody does that anymore, David. So we're not going to commit to anything. We're not, we're not committing to church. We don't want to commit because, let's just face it, David, something better might come up. And if I, come out, if, I, if I miss out on that, I'll never forgive myself. And so I'm not committing to this. I'll do it on my timetable, if I want to. So why come to church? Why church? Why would you do that to yourself? I mean, I don't even really need you, David. I mean, I can stay at home, and I can watch YouTube. I can watch the Facebook stream. There's, I mean, if, if HGTV can teach me how to regrout my bathroom, then YouTube has a message for me, and everything I need to know about the Bible... I can learn it. I, David, I, I don't need you. There's this endless stream of messages on there. Why church? 
Why would you even come to church? Let me say, I think you should. There's a growing number of people who are walking away from the church. Many of them will say, I'm not walking away from Jesus. I'm walking away from the church. I don't believe in institutionalized religion. I think they've missed the boat. I think that our culture has told us something about church, and I think even as Christians, even as churchgoers, we believe it. We believe that there is somehow, now let's just face it, we do things differently now than the early church in the book of Acts, right? We do things differently now. But some people see such a difference between the two that they don't understand that what we're doing this morning is biblical. It's biblical. And we are called to observe We're called to not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. And so for the next few weeks, five or six, we're going to look at this idea. Why church? Now today's message is a little different because first we have to define the terms. Today I just want to look at, the title of the message today is, what church? I want to ask another question. What church are you talking about? And I want us to look at scripture and I want us to see what church looks like in scripture so that we can see how that relates to what we're doing today. Is this really God's intention for what we should be doing? And, and is, is this really what what's God's plan is when you look at Scripture? Is this really what we're doing when we come together on Sundays? And so that's what I want to define today. Every other message that follows will answer the question, why church? I want to give you four or five answers as to why church. But today, I don't necessarily give you any answers to that. I want us just to understand that that what we find in Scripture, referred to as the church, that that what we're doing today is a biblical enterprise. This is a biblical obedience and a command to Scripture. Let's read in Ephesians 4. And what you find in this passage is you find that the the description is is the idea of gifts and and the body of Christ. But I want us to, to take this particular passage. It has a few things that we can pull from Um, as we read, starting in in verse 11. And he, God, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers. Now, let me stop right there just for a second. That word shepherds and teachers, that's the pastor-teacher role. Sometimes, even in Greek, that's kind of one word idea, okay? So he gave to, to the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and the teachers... To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. I want us to pull a few things out of this passage to look at today to get a biblical picture of what church looks like. First of all, I want us to talk a little bit about the character 
of the church. Let's talk about the church's character. Let's talk a little bit about what the church is, uh, is supposed to be. When we see it in Scripture, what is the nature of the church? What does it look like when you find Scripture? Now, if you look at the passage that we just read in verses 11 through 16, you'll note that nowhere in this passage is the word church used. But there's a few times where the word body is used. Do you see that? You find it in verse 12, building up the body. You find it in verse 15. Uh, there's an implication. It's the idea that we grow up in every way into the head. He is the head. Then verse 16, the whole body. And the body grows again in verse 16. You find that word. And so sometimes, most of the time, you're going to see the word church. But sometimes church is referred to as something else. There's these pictures, the body of Christ, the bride of Christ. Sometimes the church is a building or a temple is how it's referred to. Sometimes the, the church is a family. You find all of these pictures of, of church in Scripture. And when you find those things, it's really important that we understand how the church is viewed in Scripture because the world has a lot of beliefs that the church is just a creation of men. That what we're doing here is something that men have created in a way to organize religion. That this was never Christ's intention. That it's about this personal relationship with God. And you can have that on the lake or in the woods or on your couch. And if you have that personal relationship with him, there's no need for, for this body, for this meeting together. When you get to the heart of what church is in Scripture, the church in Scripture is the meeting together. It's the body of people. The word that you find most often used for this in Scripture is, is for church is the Greek word ekklesia. You see it multiple times in Scripture. We're going to look at a few of those in just a bit. But ekklesia means an assembly. And in, in the Greek language, it could mean an assembly of any kind. But what we're finding in Scripture is it's not just an assembly of any kind. In the New Testament, we find this word used. It's an assembly of God's people. That's what ecclesia is, right? So you need to know, first of all, that the church is, the, is the, the assembly of people. It's the people that are assembled. It's not a building. See, this is how we've got into this, right? We say, like I might tell Amy, hey, Amy, I'm going over to the church. And there ain't nobody here. I'm coming here by myself, right? And I say that. We use that in our language. We use it that way. And it's probably... We, it's just worked into our vernacular, and it's wrong, and so it's affected our thinking, right? What I mean to say to Amy is, Amy, I'm going over to the church house, right? It's like the Puritans would not call, the Puritans called it a meeting house, a meeting house. It wasn't the church. You didn't go over to the church, you went to the meeting house, because the church is the people. Remember the little, here's the church, here's the steeple, open the door, and there's all the people? No, the people are the church, right? We have, we have gotten in a bad habit of calling the building the church, Right? But the, 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 that's the church house. That's the meeting house. The church is also not an organization. Right? If you have in your mind that church is an organization or a denomination or some kind of structure or hierarchy, that's not what the church is either. Right? Sometimes we'll talk about it that way because it gets blurred with like the Catholic church. And, and people that are Catholics might say, well, the church says, and they're talking about an organization or a structure. They're not talking about a, a group of people, a body of people, right? And so that's where there's some problems. People think of church as organized religion. It's really, I was at a state meeting, our uh, executive director, Thomas Hammond, was 
in front of the room, and he was sharing with people, and, and uh, something went wrong. Something happened. I don't know. You could tell that he didn't have it all together, that there, there was just kind of miscommunication somewhere, and he had to kind of get some clarification. And when he came back to the podium, this is what he said. He said, if you don't like organized religion, you're going to love us, is what he said, because that, that's not, this organized, right? And, and that's the idea. Like, when we start thinking about this, when people have in their minds church, they think organized religion. So when they say, I hate organized religion, I hate church, I hate that structure, I hate the whatever, there's a problem with terms. Because in Scripture, ecclesia is the people that are assembled. And it can refer to any level of people that are assembled. Let me show you some examples from Scripture. What I mean is, it can refer to a house church, and it can refer to every believer for all time. Let me show you what I mean. In, in Romans 16, here's a great example. This is, greet also the church in their house, ecclesia. Greet my beloved. The idea of, this idea of, of meeting together in the house. Go to, go to 1 Corinthians 16. The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Priscilla together with the church, ecclesia, that's in their house. It's that same word that's used. It's talking about a small group of believers that are meeting in a home. See that? When you get to the, um, when you move on to some of the other letters, you find it referring to the church in a city, all of the believers who are living in a city. So you know that many of the, the books of the New Testament are letters, say, that Paul wrote, these epistles that Paul wrote maybe to churches, right? And they're often named for the city. So if you go to, say, the first few verses of Thessalonians, Paul, Sylvanius, and Timothy write this letter to the church of the Thessalonians. Same idea in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. That, that, the church, it's addressed to the church of, the God, of God that is in Corinth. And it's talking about this, those who are living in Corinth, the believers that are in Corinth, that's who this letter was sent to. Sometimes, like in the verse that we read before, it refers to churches in a region. Here's another example, Acts 9 and 31. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace. He's talking about in those particular regions, church, the believers, ones who assembled together. And then you get a verse like Ephesians 5 and 25. Notice how incredible this is. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now think for just a minute. Here's this bride analogy, right? But in this particular passage, this is speaking not only of every believer worldwide, it's speaking of every believer ever. Did, did, if, if he gave his life for the, those in that early church, right, and he gave his life for those that are through history, and he gave his life for you and I, believers that are in this room today, if his life was, he gave himself up for, for us, you see what I'm getting at here? This is referring to every, it's a huge number of people. And so this ecclesia word is used to refer to the church. What we would say is we would say the church is both local and the church is universal. That's how we would say it. So if you ever hear those terms, that's what's being talked about. Is Center Grove a church? Yes, we're a local church. We're a, we're a body of believers who have been called together. We have, we have grouped together in order to impact this community. And this is a church. This is the building that we meet in. But this is the church, right? And the, and, and, but we are a part of the church universal because we are right here meeting between 
community and Peavine and Wood Station and Centerpoint. And we're meeting right here, but we're not in competition with all of them. Together, we are the church universal, right? It's this idea that the church as a whole, you find that word ecclesia referring in, in the New Testament, you find it a lot. But even in the Old Testament, you find this idea. Now, you, hopefully you know, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, okay, and primarily the New Testament in Greek. And so when you go to the, like the original languages of the text, it's not in English, and so the word ekklesia, that's a Greek word used in the New Testament. Ekklesia is not used in the Old Testament because the Old Testament's Hebrew, right? It's not Greek. So you find other words that are used there. But that same idea of ekklesia is found in the Old Testament. Let me show you what I mean. Look at this word. This is in Deuteronomy 4 and verse 10. And notice God is going to be speaking to his people. And he speaks about how on the day that you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb, the Lord said to me, gather the people. That word gather. It's a Hebrew word. It's a Hebrew word, kahal. And it's the idea of assembly, of assembling together. But the gathering of people together is the root of that ecclesia word. So, you know, this was written in Hebrew, and then sometime later, Greek becomes the dominant language. People are reading Greek. And so at some point, the Old Testament was translated into Greek so that people who were Greek speakers could read the Old Testament. And this word, gather the people together, is not exactly ecclesia, it's ecclesiazo, in the Septuagint, but it's the same idea of an assembly, a group of people together. Acts 7. This is in the New Testament, but this is Stephen, right before he's stoned, he's speaking about the children of Israel in the wilderness. And notice the word he uses. He said, this is the one who was in the congregation of the wilderness. If you have a King James, it, he says the church in the wilderness is how King James translates it. Because that word congregation, that word church, ecclesia. He's referring to that group in the wilderness, God's people assembled together in the wilderness as ecclesia. It's the people. You find something else like this in Hebrews 2 and verse 12. This is, in this passage, the writer to the Hebrews is quoting a verse from Psalms. You see how it's in the quotation marks? So we're reading a verse that's actually in Psalms. But he's writing it here, the same verse in Greek. I will tell you of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation, ecclesia, church, I will sing your praise. So when the New Testament writer quotes that verse, he uses the same word, church. Find it again, the idea of it in Hebrews 12, in verse 1, where it's talking about the fact that, therefore, since we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses... Ecclesia is not used, but the idea is there's this gathering of people, right, that, that we should continue the race and we should run the race and that we should, we should trust in him because there's this great cloud of witnesses that are observing. We're, we're a part of this group that are those who have trusted in him. And so this idea of, of a body, it is, Ecclesia Church is the gathering of people. And in some ways, this is a very formal thing, Right? Think about that for just a moment. In the New Testament church, when it describes the church, the ecclesia, the ecclesia was a place where people were added to 
And it was also a place, like the church at Corinth, had lots of problems or issues within their church. People that were very sinful. There was uh, a guy sleeping with his stepmother. They were suing each other because they had fights and divisions amongst themselves. They discriminated against uh, maybe poor people within the church. There's, there's a lot of, when you read, Corinth, Corinth had a lot of problems. And at some point, Paul addresses some of the ideas as to how they should handle or should, should discipline each other. And at some place, he says, look, if you've got a person who, who claims to be a part of this church, but they're not behaving as the church, at some point, there has to be a separation of fellowship. So the church is a thing that you can be included into, and it's a thing that you can be excluded from in Scripture. So when we start talking today about formal institutionalized, joining a church, all of those things, ecclesia is the body of believers. Do we do things a little differently? Did they have a, a printed role that they kept in the early church? Probably not. I don't know. Maybe. But, but the idea that we're getting at here is this group of people assembling together is, is what we mean when we talk about church. I will say this. Not every assembly is a church. Oh, well, David, see, I don't need to come down to Center Grove. I've got six ladies that I'm meeting for a Bible study in my house. That's a group of believers meeting together. Is that a church? Hmm. In Scripture, what you see the church doing is you see the church following Christ's commands. The church is baptizing people. That's how people are added to their number. You see the church observing the Lord's Supper together, right? So... Every little group of believers, just six ladies for a Bible study or not, uh, it's the church. I mean, they're, they're a part of the church, right? But they're not starting a new, a new church, right? In the same way that we establish a church, same way that you have in a, a community, you have a church starting, you're planting a church. It's not the same idea. I would also tell you this. Just because you have an assembly does not mean that everyone there is a part of the church. This is really important too. We would say that the church is local and global. It's every believer everywhere. But we would also say that the church is both visible and invisible. David, what do you mean? That's weird. It's weird. It's weird theology talk. Yeah, it's sort of. But here's what we mean by that. The church visible is what we think about the church being. It's what we can see right here. Okay, I, I, I see all of you people, I can, I can look around, and most of you are here most weeks, and so I can say, yeah, uh, Karen's a part of our church, right? Ray's a part of our church. I can see who's, it's faces that I can put with it. They're visible to me, right? And, and by every, um, by every uh, estimation of mine, Ray and Karen know Christ as their Lord and Savior, and, and they're one of his, and they're, they're believers, and they're here on Sunday, visible. But the Bible is also really clear that sometimes within the church, there's people that say they're a part of the church, but they've never trusted in Christ. They gather, but they don't know him. This idea that Christ loved himself and gave himself up for the church, right? His sacrificial gift on the cross, his blood has never been applied to their life. They're not a part of the church, invisible. The church visible is how we see the church. The church invisible is how God sees the church. It's invisible because it's invisible to us. 
We can't see the condition of men's hearts. So when I look around this room, I mean, look, you see how deep you can see into mine? That's how deep I can see into yours. I don't know. I don't know who's trusted Christ. I don't know who's a believer. I don't know that. But he does. And he's very clear in Scripture about the fact that there are multiple people who do not, even though they gather, they're not a part of the body. In 2 Timothy, in chapter 2, God says that he knows who are, who, who's his. He knows those that are his. You also find a lot of talk of this in Scripture when you see things like the stories of wheat and tares. They're all growing together, same field, all look the same, but they're not the same, right? You find the idea of leaven in the loaf, right? And, and that one bit of leaven spoiling the loaf it talks about, right? This, the same kind of idea. How about these passages? Acts chapter 20, this is Paul speaking to the Ephesian elders. He says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in from among you, not sparing the flock. Here's the key. And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking twisted things to draw the disciples away. Those men that are speaking that, they look like they're a part of the church visible, but not a part of the church invisible. See the idea? Matthew 7 and verse 15, Jesus said, Beware of false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ravenous wolves. It's this idea that the visible church includes all of those who profess a faith in Christ and give evidence of that in their lives. But the, the invisible church are those who are of genuine faith within the assembly. And the truth is, is that if you're here this morning, only you and God know whether you're a part of both the church visible and the church invisible. Only you can, only you and God know that. Church's character. Let's talk secondly about this. Let's talk about the church's configuration. In this particular passage that we're reading, what you'll find is there is some structure here. One of the reasons that people say that they're so against church is they see church as organized religion, and they don't like organized religion. They don't like the fact that this is, they, they see this as being a thing where I'm a, I'm a con man, and that you come and I con you and I share this with you and I get you to believe one thing and feel a certain way about yourself and, and hopefully you give some money and that, that's how that works out. And the idea of organized religion, of it being a structure, people say that they're against that, but if you read this passage, what you're finding is there is structure here. Let me show you. Here's what I think this passage says the structure is, Okay. Christ is the head. Leaders are a gift from God. And the body of believers together submit to the church. I mean, submit to Christ. Look at where you find that. Christ is the head. Look at verse 15. We're to speak the truth in love. We're to grow up in every way into him who is the head, Christ. He is Lord. And we're to treat him as such. And every believer should submit to the authority of Christ. Right? Okay, but Then look back up at verse 11. You have this idea that God gives, he gave, God gives leaders. In the early church, it looked like the apostles. In the Old Testament, it looks like prophets. You have people that are evangelists. You have people that are shepherds and teachers. God's giving these gifts to people to be able to, as the next verse says, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. So, the idea that leadership in this idea is to equip the saints, and it's an equipping role. 
And if you think for a minute about my role as pastor, you could say my role as a pastor is a leadership role. But people often have a mistaken idea of what that means. Some people, I know you know, some people think that I'm the boss. Just come in here and I boss around and say, this is what we're doing, that's what we're doing. So I'm the boss. It's like an organization, it's like a company, and I'm the boss. So hire people, fire people, I'm the boss. That's not really what it's like. Some people think I'm, uh, I'm the owner of this church. You know, if you, when I'd have kids on the, on the bus, I remember we're taking them home, and when they asked me, they said, hey, do you live here? No, I don't live here. It's just, it's just, but you own this place, right? Nope, I don't own it either. Nope. Well, what are you? <laughs> what, what, what are you? I'm not even the operator, really. Like, in some ways, there's kind of this... Um, overseeing kind of role, and, and I, I get all that, shepherding. But the idea of verse 11 says, like, essentially, you have not hired me. You have not hired the workout. Do you see what I'm saying? That's not what you've done. You've not hired the workout in me, right? You've not hired me just to do ministry, and you come and enjoy the ministry. That's not the way it works, right? The idea is, is that as in this leadership role that I'm equipping saints for the work of the ministry. See how this works? So it's a leadership role, and when you find those leadership roles, I believe that really the truth is how I lead is I teach truth from Scripture. I'm, in a God, I'm, I'm to be a godly example, and I'm to shepherd the flock. And I'm not coming up with that just off my, off my brain, just, you know, just coming out of because that's what I want it to be. If you look at verses like Hebrews 13 and verse 7, it says things like this. Remember your leaders. Those who spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. This is the idea, right? It's a leadership role. It's a teaching role. It's a shepherding role. It's not leadership in being a boss and a manager and an owner. That's not what it is, right? So when people talk about church like that, they kind of have a mistaken view of what church is. Christ is the head, and leaders are a gift from God, but every believer is to submit to the authority of Christ. Do you know who's the decision? Do you know who the ultimate decision-making power with lies with in the church? The body. It's not a boss. It's the body. We, we vote on things. We come to a decision together as a church. Now, ideally, what we're doing is we're submitting to Christ. Ideally, personally, we're walking with the Lord. We're, we're allowing the Holy Spirit to show gifts in our life, and we're, we're living in the power of Him. So when it comes to the decision-making ideas, are there churches that make decisions that are outside of the will of God? Yes, all the time they do. All the time they do. But that's because there's people that are voting on that issue that are not... They're not walking with him. So I'm saying, ideally what this gets at is, is that in verse 15, Christ is the head. Verse 11, uh, there's leaders. Verse 12, the, the saints are doing the work of the ministry. Verse 16, and when each part is working properly, it makes the body grow up so that it builds itself up in love. This is the idea. 
when it comes to the structure of the church, is there structure? Yes. It's not what people view it as. Oftentimes you'll see this in Scripture too. You'll see that our, that our decision-making, decisions that we make as a church, is sometimes done in a representative way. We do that now, right? When, like we as Georgia, we're part of a denomination. We are Southern Baptist Church. The Southern Baptist Convention, on a national level, makes decisions. And I'll be honest with you, I think some of them are wrong. There's a lot of Southern Baptist stuff that's wrong. Now, I like our Georgia Baptists for the most part. I, I like Georgia Baptists and the decisions we make as Georgia Baptists. But when we have a convention together in November, does every Georgia Baptist vote on every decision for ministry? Does every Georgia Baptist in the state vote on that? No. We send messengers to a convention who vote. So there's kind of this, this representative way. You see it in Scripture when you think about councils. For instance, really famously in Scripture, there was that Jerusalem council where they were deciding how they were going to handle the Jew-Gentile divide within the church. And so people went from various churches and they counseled together. They met together in order to make a determination about what was going to happen. Right? This is found in Scripture. When people get angry at the organization, what they're really angry at is they're angry at the misuse or the abuse of, uh, of, of an organization or of leadership. But the idea is, is that when you come to it in Scripture, there is structure, there is a configuration to this. See the church's character, configuration. Let's look thirdly at this. Let's look at the church's cultivation. Notice what you find in this passage several times. When I say cultivation, what I mean is growth. How does the church grow? Well, if you look at this passage... There's lots of mentions of this idea of growth and maturity. Look at verse 12. The saints, those leaders are to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body. There's growth. Look at verse 13. We're going to mature to the measure of the fullness of Christ. That's growth. Look at 15. We are to grow up in every way. We're to grow up in Christ. Look at verse 16. Each part works together properly and makes the body grow. Growth is a real strong theme in this section, in this passage. How does the church grow? Let me tell you how the church doesn't grow before we talk about how the church does grow. The church does not grow. If you look through history, church does not grow through domination. Our army's bigger than our army, and your, our army's Christian, so you're now Christian. Doesn't work like that, does it? People will say, well, in the name of Christ, so many people have died. In the name of religion, all these crusades were fought, and all these people have died. Mm, church doesn't grow that way. Church does not grow through like an initiative or a program. Like we, could, we can put a hundred a number up here and we can come together and make a commitment that we're going to ask or invite, share the gospel with a hundred people this year. But that doesn't necessarily mean that that's going to make the church grow, nor that that will be what causes the church to grow. It's not a program. It's not an excitement. You know, there's, there's some places that grow because it's an exciting place to be. But just because you have a big crowd does not necessarily mean that there's good, solid growth there, Right? So what should we be looking for? 
Should we be looking for Center Grove? If we think about the church where we attend, how should the church grow? David, I'd love it if this place was just packed to the brim and we just had people all over the place. I'd love that. And in some ways, that would be good, right? But if we're just drawing a crowd, that's not the same thing as church. How does the church grow? The church grows through Jesus Christ himself. Jesus Christ himself builds the church. Go back to Matthew 16 and verse 18. This is that conversation that you're familiar with. We won't get all into all the interpretation and what all the words mean and all that, but get the idea. I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church. Who's building? Who's growing? He's doing the growth. Christ is doing that. Look at this passage in Acts 2 and 47. They were praising God, and they were having favor with all the people the early church was. This is the important phrase, though. And the Lord added to their number daily. Who's doing the growth? Not the people. It's not the people doing the growth. The cultivation of the church comes through Christ. You even see it in the passage. Notice in the passage that in verse 15, there's this idea that each of us individually, we are to grow up into him who is the head, Christ. That's the first point of growth, that you as an individual are walking daily with the Lord, that you as an individual are praying, you're, you're reading your Bible, you're listening to God's voice, you're uh, sensitive to the Spirit in your individual life. But then if you'll note, it goes a little further than that. Individually, verses 11 and 12, we function within the body corporately, like we've got a role, right, for ministry. We're working within that ministry. And through all that, verse 13, we're matured. We grow into the stature of the fullness of Christ. There's maturity here. So that the next verse says that we're not, we're not tossed about by everything that comes along, right? The, this, this, this kind of doctrine's taught, and we're not swayed by it. And this false thing's said, and we're not swayed by it. And the criticism of the world comes, and we're not swayed by it. We're, we're steadfast, because we're growing in him personally, individually. We're operating within a local body together. We're fulfilling or, or, or doing ministry together. So that then, verse 16, the whole body's joined together. And when every part is working properly, it makes the body grow. This is this idea that the church growth comes from him. Church's character Configuration, cultivation, let's talk about one more. Let's talk about the church's commitment. Let's talk about the church's commitment. If you look at this idea of commitment, the idea is not that we're committed to an idea or a denomination or even a local church. What are we to be committed to as a church? I'll be honest with you, I've seen this happen a lot of ways where I believe people's commitment is in the wrong place. Pastor leaves. They leave too. It's a big exodus. There's a lot of people that like the pastor. The pastor's gone. No more reason they were committed to the wrong thing. Certain people left. 
Their friends left. So they leave, committed to the wrong thing. Now listen, I'm not saying that it's a wrong thing to move your church membership or to do whatever else. That's not what I'm saying in the slightest. What I'm getting at is, where does our commitment lie? And for the church, I believe that we're committed to three things. These three things will drive the sermon series for the rest of our time together. We're, first of all, to be committed to God. Our ultimate commitment is to Him. And in that relationship, our primary purpose is worship. When we gather here on Sunday morning, it is not for us to be comfortable. It is not for us to enjoy ourselves. It is not for us to sing the songs that we like or hear a message that entertains us. When we gather on Sunday morning, it is to hear what God would say to us. It's to lift him up in worship, to see him in all of his glory, and to see how we are not that. And how his word would speak to us about how he can change us. That's the idea. We ultimately come worshiping him, being committed to him. We're committed to the Lord, but secondly, we're committed to each other. Like we have this, we have this saying we've been saying every week. What are, what are we doing at Center Grove? We're growing together. That was, we're growing together. That was worthless. You know, there's somebody watching this on the video. You know that? So for them, let's try it again. What are we doing here? Yeah, let, Pam's happy about it now. So the idea is, is that we're growing together. And the idea there is, is that we have a commitment to one another. It's a commitment to disciple one another. It's the commitment to, to accountability with each other. It's the commitment that we're there for each other, that we bear one another's burdens. It's this idea that we're there for one another, to encourage one another and to nurture each other. So we're committed to the Lord. We're committed to each other. But we have a commitment to the world. We have a commitment to reach those that have never heard the message of the gospel, that have never received Christ as their Savior, to reach them with the message. Now, I want to say something before we, because this is kind of an intro to the series. And if you think about those three things, I believe that every single church should be balanced in those areas. I think that a good, healthy church is going to be balanced in its commitment to God and each other and the world around them. Because... This is, we're going to see it in the right light, and we're going to have that, that kind of as a priority in our life, right? We're, we're going to be, I will say this though, I believe that you as a member of a church, you should, every one of those aspects should be seen in your own life, but for a church to be healthy, I think those need to be in balance. For you as an individual, they don't have to be in balance. David, wait, what, hang on, what do you mean by that? Well, think about it for just a minute. We're taught, and, and there's a lot of talk in Scripture about the fact that all of us have different gifts. Now, all of us are to, to be evangelists and share the gospel, but there seems to be a specific gift of evangelism. There seems to be this specific idea. Even in this passage, in verse 11, it says to some, he gave evangelists, right? You know what that person is? My friend Roger Horton, who's come here and, and spoke before with the spiky hair and a bow tie sometimes. Roger... Roger is an evangelist, and Roger will talk to a fence post about Jesus. And some of them are saved, I think, when he talks to them. But he, he just has that way about him. Roger disciples, but Roger's not as, as strong a discipler as he is an evangelist. Do you see what I'm saying? 
Roger worships, but his real gift is evangelism. And so that's what Roger needs to do. But you have some people that they have a real knack for planning worship and, and leading people in worship and that sort of thing. And so for them, it's not that they should never share their faith about Jesus. They should because they have a commitment to the world, right? And it's not that they shouldn't lo love I I each other, right? But they have, th they have gifts that lead in worship. And so that's where their focus is. Because while we should be balanced as a church, we're balanced as a church because all of us are individually leaning into our gifts where we're strong. And our gifts are varied. When each one is working together properly, the church builds itself up and grows. See how that works? While we're on the subject of commitment, I want to say this and close this way. When I look at this passage and I think about what we're to be committed to, I think about what God is committed to. And here's the thing about him. He's committed to his own namesake. We even talked about that Wednesday night, the idea that God will act for his own namesake. God will act so that he will get glory. That's not egotistical because he's worth every bit of it. He's worthy of it all. It's only right and righteous that he should be lifted up. He's committed to me and you. And he's committed to seeing a world come to know Christ. And here's the thing about his commitment. Our commitment is as fickle as we are. We decide to, we don't, whatever. But when it comes to his commitment, he has shown his commitment to us by giving himself for us. We talked this morning in Sunday school about the idea of um, we may be a week behind everybody else because we, we strayed uh, a week. But we talked about uh, temptation and the idea of temptation in, in, with Joseph. And in that particular story, when we talked about that, we talked about the, the idea of infidelity in marriage and that temptation. And, that, kind of, and that, that came up in our discussion. When we talked about it, the idea is, is that we are unfaithful to him over and over and over again. We're the bride. And we're unfaithful to him. He is everlasting. He is faithful to us. He is steadfast and forgiving. And I'm saying that to you because as I preach this morning about the church, I think that relationship that you find in Ephesians 5 is such a beautiful picture of Christ as the husband, the church as the bride. And the passage tells us that he loved himself and he gave himself for the church. And we are to be so in love with him. We're to be so in love with him and honor him and respect him because he has given all for us. This sacrificial love that he has for us, it's not just as a body. It's individually for every one of us where he has given his life for you. Listen, I can't answer this. You're here this morning. You're here this morning. And who's gathered together? Ecclesia, the assembly's here, right? But whether you are part of the church visible, that's, you're here. But are you a part of the church invisible? 
If God, it right now, as God looks and peruses the hearts of those who are here, I, I, church visible, we're here, right? But when it comes to the idea of what God sees, are you a part of the church? I don't mean is your name on a church roll. I mean, are you a genuine believer in him? Part of the, the genuine assembly of God's people. Because he's given himself for you. Would you turn to him? Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you would like to find more resources to help you grow in your walk with Christ, check out our website at rootedandresolved.org.